Well, do take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. It's on page 1002, I think it is. Something like that. Hebrews chapter 2, our text is really verses 17 and 18, but let's begin reading at verse 14 to remind ourselves of where we're coming from. The author has spent chapter 1 talking about God, the Son, sharing the whole nature of God, and then chapter 2 talking about how God the Son has taken on a human nature in order that He might reach out to us. So, verse 14 reads, let's hear the Word of God. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who is the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, it may not be immediately obvious to you this morning or apparent why this subject that we're looking at today should be of any interest to you contemporary, or at least you'd like to think you're contemporary, uh, in the world we live in today. The idea that Jesus is a high priest. So, let me, before we begin looking at the text, tell you about friends of Christian and I. Sir Fred and Lady Elizabeth Catherwood um, are well-known people. Uh, Sir Fred died two years ago but were very well known uh, publicly in the United Kingdom. In a number of areas, uh, Lady Elizabeth was the daughter of, is the daughter of uh, the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and uh, she, her sister, Anne, came to our church in London. Her daughter, Bethan, is one of our closest friends. Sir Fred and Lady Elizabeth reached out to me very early in the middle of my career or early in my career and befriended me and were a great support, people that I both love and admire. Sir Fred, after he graduated from Clare College in Cambridge, spent most of his early life at the top of the tree in terms of the business community in the United Kingdom. He was the CEO of a number of the biggest names and companies in, in the UK. And in those businesses, he was successful because he was able to bridge the gap between the management, which he represented as the top of the tree, and and what was at that time a very aggressive and very unsettled trade union movement. He managed to persuade the trade unionists that, in fact, if they wanted the firm to succeed, it would be helpful if they contributed to the success of the firm. So successful was he that when Although he was a conservative in his politics, when a a socialist government took over under Harold Wilson in the 1960s, it was to Sir Fred that they turned 
and asked him if he would be the executive director of the National Economic Development Council, which was meant to bring trade unions and the management of the business world together to find a way in which they could cooperate to make business thrive in Britain. It was his work on that council that earned him a knighthood from Her Majesty the Queen. He went on after that to become a vice president of the European Parliament. He would not be happy with Brexit. Sir Fred, though, spent most then of his adult life outside of business once he had left business. And even within business, he left, spent most of his adult life acting as a mediator. He would bring these parties into a conference room and he would work with them hours and end. He would, he would be addressing the aggressive, angry, unsettled party. I won't say which was which. But he would, he would try to appease and assuage the anger of one and then bring both sides together to reach an agreement, a reconciliation. That was his magic that he was able to work a magic for which he was recognized not only by his peers, but also by his country. I was thinking of Sir Fred this morning as I was thinking of preaching to you this passage, because his act as a mediator is precisely what the work of a priest is. A priest brings together two parties— an offended party, and the offending party. And the business is to reconcile these parties to one another. Now, I want you to bear that in mind then as we look at the text uh, to try and understand that, in fact, what we're talking about here is not completely off the wall in a day and age in which we have no sacrificing priests uh, today as they had then. And this, these verses that we're looking at this morning, verses 17 and 18 in particular, uh, are, but I'm, I'm beginning in verse 16, but I'll, we'll do that in a second. These verses are teaching us that the eternal Son of God took on our human nature, that He might be qualified, one, to act as our mediator, two, to deal with our sin, and three, to come to our aid. Let's look at those things together. But first of all, look at verse 16. For here we're being reminded about who it is we're speaking about. We're speaking about the eternal Son, the one who comes from, if you can imagine, uh, all reality divided into two. There is a divine reality and a creature re reality. He comes from the divine reality, and He crosses the barrier, the boundary of divine reality and our reality, where the angels are, He crosses that line, and He enters our human creaturely existence. That's been the message so far in the chapter. And so, in verse 16, it says this, "'For surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham.'" Now, here I have to pause for a moment and say something about this text as you find it in your English version. The words to help here are not helpful. 
The word for help in verse 18 is the word for help. But the word in verse 16 uh, was only used, was reduced or played around with and made to mean help in that basic sense by anti-Trinitarian groups back in the 17th century, uh, groups like the Socinians, for those who want to know. Uh, The traditional Greek understanding of the word tells us that the word literally means to seize something, to take hold of, to lay firm hold of, or to appropriate, to take and possess something for yourself. So, we read in the Bible, the same word is used, when Jesus took a blind man by the hand and healed him. When Jesus took uh, a sick man and physically raised him up and healed him. When Simon Peter was drowning at sea, Jesus stretched out His hand firmly and took a grip of him and rescued him. That's how this word is normally used, to seize, to grip, to rescue. It's the word that's used later on in this book in chapter 8 and verse 9, and it's translated uh, that God, in the day that He took them by the hand, that is Israel by the hand, to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Same word is used of people who take hold of eternal life. So, it should read, literally, as the old translations do, that it's not angels that He takes hold of, but He takes hold of the offspring of Abraham. This is how Thomas Aquinas understood it. He's assuming human nature, not angelic nature. This is how John Calvin understood it. He's taking hold of our human nature. This is how John Owen, the the great chancellor of Oxford University and the greatest English-speaking theologian, took it. The Lord Christ took hold to Him and took upon Him our human nature of the seed of Abraham. Now, what is this? What is the importance of this? For us, in the flow of this chapter, there has been a movement going on, having in chapter 1 described the eternal Son from His Godward divine perspective. In chapter 2, we now see Him making a move towards us. It starts with Him being made for a little while lower than the angels. He who is high above all praise becomes for a little while lower than the angels. How low? It goes on to tell us how low. He partook in flesh and blood. He didn't become an angel in the in-between part. He went beyond that, and He took our flesh and blood. He was made of the same physiological, psychological matter as we are. He entered into full humanity as we have it. And He took on that nature in order that He might die for us, in order that He might die, and by His dying, break the power of Satan. And now we're being told that not only did He take on human nature, He did not just become any man or every man. He became a particular man, and He became a particular man of a particular dynasty and descent. He took on the offspring of Abraham. He became descended from Abraham. And the point behind this 
statement is that you can now identify him more specifically. He comes from the line of Israel and from the line of Judah and from the line of David. He comes from Abraham because he took on special genetic descent from Abraham. But it's even more than that. It's even more than that. He comes to take hold of people who are the offspring of Abraham. You say, well, that isn't me. I'm not a Jew. I'm not an Israelite. As far as I know, there is no Semitic blood in my veins. So, that's, that's me ruled out. And yet, one of the things that we discover is that when Jesus comes into the world, He comes into the world to be that promised seed of Abraham that God promised Abraham when He made a covenant with Abraham that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, singular. It does not say, Paul is speaking, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So, Christ becomes the promised seed of Abraham. And He becomes the promised seed of Abraham for what reason? That in, that in Him all the nations of the world, represented by us in many respects in this room today and listening by webcast, might be blessed in Him. How does He bless us in Him? He makes those who believe in Him children of Abraham, not because they share Abraham's genes, but because they share Abraham's faith. Abraham is the quintessential believer, and if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're believing what Abraham believed. Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it, and rejoiced. This is how it's put by the Apostle Paul in Galatians. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We've been getting hints right through this passage that Jesus Christ came into the world not just for anybody, but for particular people. They're called heirs of salvation, they're called the sons of God. They're called the brothers of Christ. They're called the children of God. They're called the offspring of Abraham. He's narrowing it down, and he's saying, this Messiah came into the world for God's people, for God's elect. So, it's not, the it's not angels that he comes to take to himself. He comes to take to Himself first the nature of a child of Abraham and to take to Himself all the children of Abraham, whether they're related to Him by genes or by faith. He comes to save His people from their sins. So, this is the one about whom we're speaking. And the apostle then goes on to say, the writer goes on, then goes on to say, this eternal Son took our nature and took the nature of a Jew in order that he might be qualified to act 
as our mediator. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. He came into the world in order that he might conduct the worship of God by becoming our mediator. Now, notice the way in which he's qualified. The writer spells it out. He's qualified because he's human. He is made like his brothers. That word brethren there includes men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, the family of God. He was made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be human. If he was going to be our our priest, he had to be one of us. If he was going to represent us, and he is human, and therefore he is able to represent us. Secondly, he is a merciful high priest. That word merciful there is an interesting word. In the Greek, or the Greek version of the early Scriptures, it's the word that's used to translate one of the big Hebrew words, chesed, which means, or which is translated in English, steadfast love. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. This word merciful is used in the Greek to translate the steadfast love of the Lord. So, when it's used here, it has that emphasis as well. If you think about this, look at it like this. Mercy or steadfast love in God is, from our earthly perspective, so we have to be careful about the language we use when we're talking about God, an intellectual decision. The the steadfast love of God is His awareness of our misery, of His will to relieve our misery, of His decision that He will set His love upon us. God does not have our way of feeling things. We are creatures. If you feel down today, it's because of some chemical… If, if you're feeling discouraged today, if you're feeling uh, sick today, then there's, there's physiological signals that are being sent to, to your brain to tell you you're feeling sick, and, and you maybe better get up out of your seat and go down to the bathroom and uh, use the, the place to, to throw up, or whatever, whatever it might be. I'm just uh, giving you permission to leave right now. We're all watching. In other words, we feel through our creatureliness. We feel through our very physicality. That's the way we are made to operate, but God is not like that. There is a a fundamental creator-creature distinction. We've been emphasizing this as we think about God. But when you think of the God-man, when you think of Jesus, He feels steadfast love towards us the way we feel love towards us. He feels it through creaturely ways. He feels it through a human way. He feels the way we feel when we fall in love, or feel love, or feel betrayed, or feel that we are being abandoned by someone. He feels it the way we feel it. He feels it in our earthly human reality. That's what qualifies Him, you see, to be a merciful high priest. You see it when they're, when they're bringing Him through the streets of Jerusalem. They've whipped him, and they've beaten him, and they've bashed him about, and he's carrying his cross. 
and he's thirsty from blood loss. And there are women standing, and they're doing what women in, in ancient Jerusalem would do when somebody is going to execution. They would stand there, and they would wail and cry and mourn. And Jesus stops because He felt compassion towards them, and He said, don't wail and mourn for me. Wail and mourn for what's going to happen to this city and you people, what's coming, out of compassion. He is a compassionate, steadfastly loving high priest, and He's faithful. He's faithful. That means He has a constant, never-changing, never-being-diverted, careful, exact concern for His people. He will tend the flocks like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He'll carry them in His bosom and gently lead those who are with young. You see in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6, we read about the Lord God of Israel, that His, about His steadfast love and His faithfulness. Jesus is full of steadfast love and faithfulness as God. And in humanity, He manifests in a creaturely way what He manifests as the, in a divine way, His steadfast love and His faithfulness to His people. So, in these three ways, He is qualified to be our mediator. Secondly, He is qualified to deal with our sin. You see, you don't just want a mediator. You don't just want a God who can merely say to us, well, I feel your pain, and not be any use beyond that. The emphasis of this chapter so far has been that the Son became human in order that He might take our, our mortality and be able to die for us, and by dying, release us from the crippling fear of death, a fear of death that is compounded by the fact that we have these inner senses when our conscious, conscience is really sensitive of guilt, of fear, of fear that after death there is judgment. It is appointed a man once to die, and after death, judgment. So, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in the worship of God and to make propitiation for the sins of his people. This is our fundamental problem this morning. This is the fundamental problem of society. It's the fundamental problem of the world. It is not a problem that can be a uh, addressed or, or dealt with by our politicians or our business leaders or our philosophers. This business that lies at the very heart of what it means now to be human as fallen creatures. Before the fall, you know, under Adam, believers had personal access to God. They had no need of sacrifice or of a priest or of any mediator. There was no alienation. But when sin entered, it broke off all good relations between God and people. It necessitated a way to regain God's favor so that people could enjoy God's company. Ultimately, this was going to be through Christ, but, but God had an interim measure. He introduced a sacrificial system. You find Adam and his sons using this sacrificial system. 
You find Noah offering sacrifices, Abraham offering sacrifices. And under Moses, it is enshrined in the legal code of Israel that there should be a sacrificial system. And here was the thing. You, you sinned. You broke the commandments. What do you do about that? Well, you go to the priest. You bring with you something valuable. If you're poor, you, you bring a sparrow you caught in the garden. You bring a turtle dove or a pigeon. If you're wealthier, you bring a, a calf or a or, or, or a lamb, and you bring it to the priest. And you confess your sin. And the creature dies. You say, that's gory. I don't want to hear that this morning. But why does it happen? It happens to bring home to us that there is no forgiveness without the sin, the price of sin, being paid, the cost being met. It's kind of a way of instructing people in a kind of very basic level of this great principle that our offense when we sin is not against our neighbor, not against our parents or our children or our uncles or our aunts or our colleagues or whatever. Our offense when we sin is an offense by a finite being against an infinite being. And that therefore the cost of, of, of reconciliation is superior. It involves death, but it involves such a death that these animals can never ever do it. So tomorrow when I sin, back to the temple I go. And next week when I sin, back to the temple I go. But the argument of the book of Hebrews is that we now have a priest who is able, who is, who is able to deal with our sin decisively. That's what it says here. He came to make propitiation for the sins of His people. He came to act towards God on our behalf. He came to do towards God what we needed done. He came to resolve this great elephant in the room. When we gather for worship here Sunday by Sunday, the elephant in the room is that since we were here last week, we have fallen short of the glory of God. The elephant in the room is all those thoughts, all those imaginations, all those words, all those acts that we should not have committed, said, or done, or things that we should have said that we failed to say, or things we should have done that we failed, that we failed to do. That's why right at the very beginning of our worship, we deal with the elephant in the room. We come out of the closet, as it were, and we say to God, I'm a sinner in need of your pardon, in need of your salvation. That's what Jesus came to do. That's what our high priest came to do on our behalf. He came to propitiate God. Jesus told a story once about two men went to church to pray. One was a very religious, very respectable, very wealthy man who had no problems and who never did anything wrong and was telling God how pleased God should be that he was there in church that day. And there was this other man who'd done everything wrong. You can imagine, he'd done everything wrong in the book. You can imagine, he couldn't even bring himself to lift up his eyes towards heaven when he mumbled his prayer to God. God, be propitiated to me. 
a sinner. He uses the same word as we have in our text. What does to propitiate mean? It means to appease, to placate, to please or tone, to turn away justified wrath. Not capricious wrath and anger, not the kind of uh, unreliable, unpredictable kind of God of the pagan. So, you're constantly, 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 constantly trying to appease them. You're not quite sure what it is they want or what it is you've done wrong or whatever, but anything goes wrong in your life. You know, it's the gods are against you, and you try to placate them. Not that kind of thing. This is justified wrath by the Creator against a creature who has offended Him, fundamentally offended Him. And you notice who it is that deals with this. It is not us bringing a sacrifice. It is not us bringing something that cost us and and giving it over to Him. Do you notice in this whole process, it is this God, the Son, who is acting on our behalf. Here is God appeasing God. That's the miracle of this thing in the Bible. It's that God is acting Himself to deal with the problem of sin. Wherever the Bible says that the Father sent the Son, it also says the Son came. You can't separate them. There are not two wills in God, one angry with you and the other feeling soft and fuzzy towards you. There's only one will in God. You can't say there are two wraths or or, or it's a Father only that feels wrath against you because the Bible talks about the wrath of the Lamb as well as the wrath of the Father. There's only one, wrath of God. And God always acts as one. And here is God in Christ, in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself. In other words, God acted in Christ to placate His own wrath so that you never, ever, ever have to face His anger again. That's the good news of the gospel. I mean, you say, what do I have to do? Nothing, accept it. Believe it. Receive it. Are you sure there's nothing I have to do to try and make up for all the failures of the past and the weaknesses of the past? Believe it. Receive it. Jesus did it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a dreadful stain. He washed it white as snow. This is how Paul puts it in Corinthians where he says that this whole thing is all of God from first to last. God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. God was in Christ who knew no sin, making Him to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. He is qualified to deal with our sin. And then thirdly, He is qualified not only to be our mediator, not only to act as our mediator, but to uh, deal with our sin, and thirdly, to come to our aid. Look at verse 
18, for because He Himself suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. It reminds us that in the days of His flesh, our Lord Jesus was tempted in all points that we are. This word tempted, by the way, is bigger than temptation to sin. It includes that, but it also includes the trials and, and tests of life, all the things that flesh is heir to, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, all of these things, including temptation to sin, are all caught up in this word, all the things that human beings experience. He endured hardship of poverty, hunger, thirst, weariness, sorrow, reproach, rejection, misinterpretation, misrepresentation. In every pang that rends the heart, the man of sorrows has a part. His family didn't believe in him. His followers who came for the fireworks of his miracles were fickle and left him when his teaching got heavy. His best friends deserted him in his hour of need. Hanging on the cross, he had to look down and watch the sheer anguish of his mother standing there while here his son, brutalized, blooded, was being mocked and scoffed at and ridiculed, hanging naked between, beneath the sky, dying a cursed death on the cross. His enemies vented their spleen at him without remorse. Satan took him on personally. He doesn't take you on personally, be grateful for that, but he took Jesus on personally and throughout his life pursued him. There on the cross, Jesus faced the dark hour of the soul when all the comforts of a believer were withdrawn from him. He was tempted. You say, well, he was without sin. Well, he was tempted. That means, that means he resisted temptation. And the reality is, most of us push against temptation so much, then we get tired, and we let go, and overwhelms us. The person who really resists it, and like Jesus alone, resisted it entirely is the one who feels the whole pressure of temptation. He is able, therefore, to tempt those who are being, to, to help those who are being tempted. John Owen says, this is the proper name of a believer, the tempted one, the tempted one. That describes our whole life. It's coming after us from all directions. And He is able to help. He is able to help. That's the word that's used here, and it's the word that's translated correctly here, to help. It's one of the great words of the Bible. First time it's used in the Bible, it's used of a woman. Did you know that? Overnight, while Adam's sleeping, God does this miracle thing. He takes part of him, and he creates this thing. Adam wakes up in the morning, and there beside him is Supergirl. I mean, 
She is best woman ever. A helper. The only other time that word is used over and over and over and over and over and over again in the Bible, it's used of God. It's used of God. Genesis 49, the God of your fathers will help you. Psalm 37, we we read it at the beginning of the service, the Lord helps them and delivers them. Isaiah 49, verse 8, in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Your wife is not there to be the help, guys. Like do the dishes, change the diapers, and all the other things they don't like doing. Empty the dishwasher. All, all, All of these things. When you read that word in the Bible, understand she will be like God for you. She'll get you out the mess you make for yourself. That's why she's there. She is there beside you. Matthew Henry says, she's not taken from your head to be over you, from your feet to be under you, but from your side to be with you. And the Lord Jesus is our helper. He is able to help because he's willing and able. He can and he will. And here's, here's the picture that, that comprises two phrases that we find in this text we're looking at today. It's a story of Peter. Remember Peter once is in the boat. Jesus is walking on the water towards them. Peter sees Jesus walking. He thinks, wow, this is really totally awesome. Walking on the water. I want to do this too. Jesus, can I come to you? Jesus says, sure. Climb out the boat and come on out here. He, he goes out the boat. And, uh, he goes out the boat. You can just see him testing. Is he going to sink? No. Oh, no. That's okay. Other foot. What do I do now? Jesus says, come on. Okay. So he starts to walk in the water out towards Jesus, and everything's going fine. The wind is whistling around him. The waves are splashing him. And then he thinks to himself, how is this working? <laughs> and he looks down, and he's, he's underwater. And immediately, Jesus seizes him. Seizes him and saves him. He is able to help. The Bible uses the word immediately there, by the way. There's no hesitation, no gap. He's right in there. He is able to help His people in their time of need, when we're being tempted. Our Lord Jesus brings His infinite wisdom, brings His infinite power, brings His now exalted status to bear, and brings His Holy Spirit who's present with us into the scenario. He is able, He is willing, doubt no more. Able to help. And in all of the exigencies of life, in all the ups and downs of our experience, in all the tests and 
trials, and even temptations of life. Don't forget that. Don't try and go it alone. Don't try and be macho or the feminine of macho. Matches. Don't, don't try and be your own savior. Just tell him. Cast yourself on him. Throw yourself on his mercy. Trust in his faithfulness. Know that he is able and willing to rescue you. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you have in our Savior, the Lord Jesus, given us a close and personal friend who is there for us in all that life will throw at us this weekend for the rest of our days. And we pray this morning that as we consider him, we might cast all our cares upon him, knowing that he cares for us. And in our distress, that rather than try to work it out for ourselves, we would immediately cry out, Lord, save me. Lord, help me. Knowing that our cry is heard in heaven by one who is steadfast and faithful in his love towards us. In his name we pray. Amen.